tune our thoughts to your word, that your spirit would do his work in us. Father, soften our hearts and quicken us to respond to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as you know, Switzerland, throughout both world wars, even though they were smack bang in the middle of the action, geographically, Switzerland remained neutral. They had an army. Uh, Their army, for the most part, was posted on their borders to deter people from attacking them and from taking... They didn't take any sides, though. They, They stayed more or less neutral. They took plenty of refugees, but they were officially neutral through both World War I and World War II. And you can see there's some advantages to being neutral. I mean, what if you pick a side and you lose? Or what if you pick a side and you're wrong? That history shows you later on that actually you're fighting with the bad guys. might just be safer to keep, keep your nose clean out of it, keep your hands... Uh, don't want your hands dirty, it's none of your business, just, just let me know when it's all over. Sometimes that's our preferred response when we face conflict ourselves. Not even conflict between countries. I mean, you've got conflict between two of your friends. Sometimes it's easier just to keep your head down, isn't it? Because you don't want to get it ripped clean off. Let them sort it out, and then you deal with it later. Jesus' life and ministry was actually full of conflict. Just seemed to follow him around everywhere that he went. And the conflict, the, the, the war that he was waging, was a spiritual one. It seems strange to us sometimes when you look at the gospel accounts that it seems like everywhere Jesus goes, he sees demons and demon-possessed people. And his, him and his disciples, they're casting out the demonic left, right and centre. When that sort of thing for many of us sits kind of outside of our experience. It seems like every second person Jesus runs into is possessed by a demon. And you get to see the supernatural conflict play out time and time again if you just spend any time really looking at Jesus and his ministry. People are coming to Jesus needing help, asking him to overcome the demons inside them. Maybe he sees what we don't, which is probably true because he's God the Son and, and we're not. So in our passage today, in in Luke chapter 11, I'd um, suggest you turn there in our shiny new pew Bibles. Uh, Luke chapter 11, verse 14, we see Jesus doing just that. He's helping yet another one who's come under demonic influence. And you see the story there in verse 14. Um, I'll just read it for us. The story part actually is over in a verse. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left... The man who had been mute spoke and the crowd was amazed. I would be too. That's a pretty amazing thing that he's doing. You think at this point, um, you know, my chains are gone, I've been set free, there'll be a massive party, wouldn't there? The demon's gone, the man's restored, he can speak for the first time in who knows how long. It's terribly isolating not being able to communicate. So you think the man and his family and the whole crowd would be over the moon, seeing this beautiful restoration that Jesus has just done. But no. And the rest of the story doesn't follow the man who's just been restored. Verse 15 tells us that there's some people in the crowd, they're thinking, they're talking to each other, saying, no, it's by the power of Satan 
that Jesus is able to command these demons. He's demonic. That's why he's able to tell these demons what to do. I mean, it's obvious that something's happened here, something supernatural is going on, some sort of power's at work. And they're saying Jesus is channeling Satan's power. It's a pretty serious accusation. Uh, Don't get thrown by the funny name in verse 15 there. Beelzebub is just an old Hebrew name for the devil, uh, the Lord of the Flies or something like that. So they're accusing Jesus of being in league with the demons, which is why the demons are listening to him. He's just as occult as they are. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're talking about. Verse 17. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. You don't need to attack a country that's in civil war, do you? You just stand back and it will destroy itself. The Jews knew all about civil war. They'd been through one and it shattered them. Now Jesus says, how can a divided kingdom stand? Satan's not going to fight against himself, is he? That doesn't make any sense. Why would he drive his own influence out of people? It's like shooting yourself in the foot. The only way that I can think of that it makes any sense at all is if they think Jesus is like some crooked cop who's been bought by the mafia or something. So the, the, the mob will get the cop to make some arrests every so often, make him look legitimate, maybe get promoted. But really he's in their pocket. And the criminals are just, they're the ones calling the shots. That's the only, uh, that's a bit of a stretch really, isn't it? Kind of crazy conspiracy theory sort of territory. But Now Jesus has been out and out opposing every single demon in every single place he's been. It's a bit rich to accuse him of being demonic himself, I think. I think it makes much more sense of the evidence you have that the reason he's opposing the demons is that he's from God. Think about yourselves, Jesus says. Some of you are involved in the work of driving demons out. And we're not told how successful they were at that and how effective they were at it or anything, but it says, uh, he says, think about when you're trying to cast out a demon. People who do that, what kind of power are they appealing to? That's God's work, right? It's in his name. Look at verse 19. And Jesus says, If I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they'll be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God, the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now he's not just shooting down their strange way of thinking here. He's drawing a line in the sand too, isn't he? Jesus is asking him to have a look at what he's been doing, all the things he's done, the people he's healed, the demons he's cast out, and says, if I'm doing all these things, and I'm doing this by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And that is a big deal. Maybe so much demonic activity is associated with Jesus because finally the real king has come. It's like an invasion. And Satan, the current despot and his mob, they're terrified. 
And it seems they're running into Jesus and every single time Jesus is kicking butt, knocking heads together and saying, my kingdom has come. Your time is up. And he's finding them and driving them out here, there and everywhere. He's making a statement. The kingdom of God has come. And everywhere Jesus goes, you see it all through the Gospels. He brings a little bit of that kingdom, a foretaste of the kingdom with him because he's the king of the kingdom and is bringing the fight into Satan's house. He gives them a little analogy just next in verse 21 to help them understand it. Verse 21, Jesus says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armour in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Now I take it, and I understand it, that we're supposed to think Satan is the strong man here, I think, in this little analogy. Satan is a strong man holding on to the world, which is his possession. But in comes a stronger man. Jesus is breaking into Satan's world. And it's not like in those you know, boxing matches where they go toe-to-toe for ten rounds and at the end of it you have no idea who's won. Or a split decision in the UFC after three rounds or something. It's not even close to this fight. You see how it's described? Uh, even just before, he drives out demons by the finger of God. Just flicks them. That's all it takes. It's not even close. Satan, the strong man, gets overpowered, outclassed, and his weapon, his arsenal is taken away. You know Jesus is heading to the cross, don't you? And the moment sin was paid for in Jesus' death, we've sung about it already. Satan, the accuser, he's also called. He's got nothing left to use against us. It's all forgiven. It's all paid for by Jesus' blood. It's like Satan's been defanged. Now, where do we figure in this? We, if you look at that little picture that he's just painted of a strong man and a stronger man coming in, we are the spoils of victory that the stronger man takes away with him. Satan's getting robbed by Jesus. That's the spiritual conflict that's going on that we're caught up in. And in this war... There's no Switzerland. There's no neutral party. The next verse, verse 23, is one of the most disturbing verses, I think, in this whole passage. Jesus says, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And it really is as offensive as it sounds, if you're hearing it right especially in the context of this whole spiritual conflict that's going on that he's been talking about, there's only two kingdoms, two camps you can possibly be in, says Jesus. You're either with Jesus or you're not, in which case that means you're still under Satan and you're opposed to God. That's about as politically non-correct as you can get. The Apostle Paul picks up this thread over in the letter to the Ephesians. Um, Come look at chapter 2 in Ephesians with me. Um, I'll turn there too, and so I'll give you some time to find it. Ephesians chapter 2, just um, a few books on. And 
And uh, we'll start reading at verse 1. Paul writes, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That's Satan. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him. But do you see at the start of that chapter there, it very clearly describes a world that's very much under the rule of the demonic. And he says, we were all at one point under that thumb, in that rule, in that influence. Everyone starts off being influenced and in the demonic, which is a very challenging thought, I think. Because what about, you know, for me, if I'm not a Christian and all the good things that I'm doing, what does that, what does that say about those things? Jesus says, whoever is not with me, back in Luke, whoever is not with me is against me. It's like until you decide to follow Jesus, or even if you're in the middle of deciding and you're still sitting on that metaphorical fence, you've got to know the fence belongs to Satan. And just because you haven't made up your mind doesn't change your default location. If there's only one safe space and you're not in it, then you're not in it. The spiritual war, this clash of kingdoms, I think looks very different in different places. Uh, in Jesus' day, as we've already seen, it was pretty in your face. Demonic possession, people yelling and screaming when Jesus approaches. Jesus talks to them and addresses them directly. Uh, that's, that seems like a world away from where we are. Uh, Taiwan was a bit like that when we went last year when uh, we took a short-term trip to visit the town of East Harbour where our missionary Christine Dillon works. Temples on literally every corner. You can smell the smell of incense from their burning, um, both paper money and different things they were doing in the temples. People full of superstition. Everyone asking for help and guidance from the spirits. Young men covered in tattoos who've dedicated themselves to these temples inviting spirits into themselves. And you know that behind the idols, the scary thing is behind the idols isn't just nothing, there's spiritual realities there that aren't God, that are opposed to God. And being there, you can feel the darkness and you can see the contrast of the gospel. But not every war zone has to have you know, tanks and shells and bombs going off in your face for it to be a war zone, does it? There's quieter and sneakier wars where you use spies and ninjas, not tanks and bombs. Coming back from Taiwan to Sydney, I remember thinking, surely Satan is not just leaving us alone here either, is he? We joke sometimes that you know parts of Sydney feel like God's own country, but even though it's not as overt here as it is in Taiwan, Sydney's doing something. Uh, Satan's doing something here in Sydney, surely. There's plenty of people I know here who don't belong to Jesus. 
which means that by default they're with the strong man. And maybe as firm in Satan's grip as the tattooed guys in the temple that I saw in Taiwan. Only they have no idea. And it doesn't have to be Taiwanese and made of wood and 20 metres tall to be an idol. Our hearts can turn almost anything into an idol. And behind the idol, maybe there definitely are spiritual realities that aren't God. And Aussie hearts are just as prone to idolatry as anyone else's hearts. It's interesting I find that Jesus says uh, a demon who's dispossessed might actually bring in more of his demon mates to repossess and make the situation worse. I wouldn't have known that. Come look at verse 24. Uh, Jesus is the expert on demons, it seems, and he says in verse 24, And when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places, seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order, then goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. So apparently having a demon cast out would do you absolutely no good unless you also turn to Jesus. Because either Jesus is in you or Satan's in you. There's only two kingdoms. So if you happen to break some addiction but don't turn to Jesus. You're still in the kingdom of darkness. Maybe a more socially acceptable citizen of the kingdom of darkness, but still in darkness. And fair game for whatever spiritual powers might reattach themselves to you then. And maybe that's what's happened in the West and in places like Sydney. Over time, the obvious and socially unacceptable expressions of being Satan's Oh, we've gotten rid of those, haven't we? The loud ranting, the cutting ourselves with stones, the demon possession is gone overtly. But what's replaced might well be seven other spirits, less overt, more subtle, but still wicked. And you're no better off. Maybe that's what's happened here in Sydney. Satan's work is so under the radar that you think nothing's happening, except for the collateral damage that keeps turning up. And reminding us that this isn't God's own country. However nice it feels sometimes to live here. And you've got to look out for the more subtle things. They can be just as dangerous as the big, loud, obvious demons. Maybe even more dangerous because you don't notice them until it's too late. Look at how our episode ends in, in, in verse 27. It seems a bit random, but I think it's, it's quite telling. Verse 27. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. What's going on here? Jesus has been invited to comment on his mother, hasn't he? And her place in the kingdom of God. A lady in the crowd, through her uh, cultural lens, sees the wonderful things that Jesus is doing and she thinks, what, what better connection can someone have to Jesus, this remarkable saviour, than to be his mother? If she had a son like Jesus, what 
pride, what privilege to be connected like that to Jesus. Now, is Jesus going to give her a Roman Catholic answer? He doesn't, does he? And he doesn't put Mary down. He lifts everyone else up. You might have missed out on the unique honour of bearing Jesus. Only one woman ever had that. But Jesus says, true blessedness. True blessedness belongs to those who hear and obey. As wonderful as it is to have Jesus in your womb, it's a greater honour to have his word in your heart. Such a gracious answer from Jesus. But there's a subtle danger there that that woman was sort of walking on the edge of, wasn't there? And you take some of God's glory and you give it to something else. Even Jesus' mother. You're missing the point. You've actually missed the mark. And it's a, it might just be a subtle deviation at first, but you've got to watch the subtle ones. They can land you in a world of trouble and become full-blown idolatry in the case of Mary. And you know what? I'm not going to name what I think are some of the subtle demons that might be working amongst us in our culture because I want you to think and you to see it for yourself. You tend to take things to heart that you discover for yourself, I find. But I'd be curious to hear what you think, if you're willing to share afterwards. 1 Peter 5 tells us to be alert, because the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. How's that anti-terrorism poster go? Be alert, not alarmed, I think, the London poster. It's not bad advice. I'll add to that, be thankful that we're with the one who's stronger than the strong man, who's come and snatched us out of the hands of the devil, the one who previously owned us and who saved us from our own sins and death that we deserve. It's so good to know Jesus. So good to hear his word and obey. Now, I also know this room is pretty big. There'll be people here this morning who are sitting on that fence, thinking about coming to Jesus. And you've heard this morning, hopefully, man, there only is two kingdoms. There's no third option. Maybe you're realising that you're in the kingdom of darkness. And maybe you're thinking, I've got to shift gears now. Today is the day to make that decision. Today is the day of salvation. Whether you've heard this message for the first time today or you've been hearing it for 50 years but you haven't made the jump. You haven't moved from the kingdom of darkness. Today, I plead with you, and the word of God commands you, come to Jesus, cross the line, and enter the kingdom of the Son. I'm going to pray a prayer in a moment that expresses that desire to live with Jesus as king, to trust that he died for your sin, that he rose again for your forgiveness and cause you to come join him. And for those of you who've already come to Jesus, please take this time, won't you, to to pray for those who are going to do business with God, even, even now. If you'd like to, please pray this prayer with me. Let's turn to God in prayer. Dear Father, I don't want to be against you anymore. 
I don't want to side with Satan anymore, but I want to be for you, Lord, and decide against Satan. And I recognize it was my choices, my rebellion, my refusal to trust you that brought me into the kingdom of darkness. But now, today, this hour, I choose to surrender. To abandon my loyalties to the ruler of the kingdom of the air and decide with you, Jesus, once and for all. And I want to say thank you, Lord, for going to that cross, for disarming Satan, so that he can no longer accuse me of sins that have already been paid for in the body of Jesus. I thank you, Jesus, that you bore the punishment in my place. I thank you that now I've moved into your kingdom. I live under your grace and with your love and in the freedom of knowing that whenever that day arrives, I'll be ushered in to the presence of God. I thank you now that Satan has left me and the Spirit of God has entered me. Help me now to keep in step with your Spirit, to love what you love, to hate what you hate. I thank you, Father, that this journey that you've begun with me, you've promised to see through to completion. Help me to love nothing and no one more than you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, those of you who prayed that prayer this morning, let me say, welcome to the kingdom of the Son. Shall we sing?